preparing for the sermon as I was digging through this text, the question became, came up to me quite often, whose story are we living in? Whose story are we living in? It's important for us to understand part of what Luke is doing in this text and, and the attention he's trying to get us uh, to have here. It's important for us to understand a bit of the context. It had been 400 years, minus six months now, since God last spoke to his people through a prophet. The prophet Malachi was the last of the Old Testament prophets, and it was 400 years ago that God had sent him. And and that kind of concludes the Old Testament messages. And then there is this, this incredible time of waiting, of wondering, not just for a little season in someone's life, but, but for generations of God's people wondering if God was going to show up and deliver them. And in that 400 years, things only seemed to get worse. The Roman Empire was not a power when Malachi last spoke. The Roman Empire wasn't dominating the whole Mediterranean area at that point. But they came to. And so by the time that this word is spoken, that this event happens, that this angel shows up, it seems like God has left the stage. And the people of God are not living in God's story anymore. In fact, they're living in the Roman Empire's story. They're living in the story of a a world power that is dominating that entire region and it really is dominating the known world. And it's a vicious story. It's a story of power, of brutality, of taking people who argued against the government and nailing them to crosses and hanging them on crosses in very public places as if to say, if you dare step out of line, if you dare write your own story, this is what's going to happen to you. You will die. Who's writing the story? It's a storyline that the people of God are living in of one of oppression, of fear, of silence. Silence from the God that they had trusted in. Silence from the God who created them. Silence from the God that they believed created the heavens and the earth. You know, oftentimes we enter the Advent season and we want the happy clappy (laughs) We want the lights on. We want the big celebration. We want the decorations all over the place, the smells, the good food. But there is an element of Advent that is penitential. That means repenting, confessing. There is an element of Advent that begins not with the joyous celebration of Christmas Day, but begins with lament of crying out to God and saying, God, this world's not living according to your story. In fact, I look at the script that's playing out in my life and nothing seems to be lined up with your story. 
I read what you promise in Scripture and I look at my life and it's like I'm reading two different scripts. Advent has a place of deep lament in it. That's why for our confession time, we wove Psalm 74 in there. I don't know how many of you have actually spent time reading that psalm before, but it's not one of the happy psalms. It's not one of those, the Lord is my shepherd, everything's fine. It's the heavy psalm. It's the Lord, your enemies have taken over. Lord, look at the world around us. It doesn't make sense. They've smashed your sanctuary. Your enemies came into the place where your name was worshipped and they destroyed it. In other words, how are we supposed to worship you, God? Where are you? That's the context. That's the context that Luke begins to write in. A world wondering if God is even going to show up ever again. A people of God who have been called by God's name, who, who have proclaimed God, who still go through the rhythms of worshiping God, but are wondering, is he ever going to deliver us? Is all this in vain? Will we ever see the salvation he's promised? Will the Messiah ever show up? Or are we subject to the script of the powers of the world? Who's writing our story? It's a little word in this text. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent. We jump past that all the time in reading this very familiar text. And we get to the space of being in awe of Mary, and we'll get there a little bit later. Mary is incredible with her response here. The humility is remarkable. But we often blow past the start of this passage. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent. Luke is giving a very clear message to the people who are reading this. God's still in control. God's still the primary actor. God's still the author of the story. God's still the director and executive producer, if you will. God's still the one who is, who is undertaking this whole story. God is still at work. God has not forgotten you. God has not abandoned his people. God has not neglected his role. God has not walked away. God is no longer silent. Some of us this Advent season are carrying with us a heaviness of our hearts because it's not just the lament of the world outside and around us and the horrors and tragedies that we encounter in the news somewhere else in the world, but it's our own grief. It's our own doubts. It's our own fears. It's those things that are gripping our hearts, that are gripping our lives, that make us wonder each and every day, God, are you there? And before we rush 
to Christmas Day and celebrating the birth of Jesus, hear the good news in this text. God sent. God acted. God intervened. God stepped in at a place that was dark and heavy for his people, at a place where they had wondered for generation after generation if God would ever be faithful. And God stepped into the story and said, this is still my story. And you are still my people. And I am still with you. And what is the angel's words? Do not be afraid. God sent. God entered in to speak a word of peace to people who were afraid, to people who felt oppressed and abandoned and discarded by God. God entered in to tell them emphatically, I'm still here. I'm still with you. The story is not done. The rest of the text unfolds from there, but if we miss this little bit, if we miss this little bit, part of it is we miss how God's story relates to our story. That God is the God who steps into the places of brokenness and hurt and pain and suffering. That God steps into those places that are wrapped up in the curses from the very beginning. The places where we know the shadow of the valley of death. And we feel its coldness around us and within us. And the good news of this text is that God has not forgotten us. God has not abandoned us. But that God is actually acting and moving on behalf of his people back then and on behalf of us today. God sent. Words from the angel are pretty striking. Hey, Mary. Teenage Mary. Scholars say as young as 12, oldest maybe 17, maybe. And God sends this angel Gabriel to her and she, he shows up and says, hey Mary, you're going to be pregnant. <laughs> Let the shock of that sit in for a moment. And oh, by the way, yeah, we know, God knows you're not married. God knows you haven't had sex. God knows. But you're going to be pregnant. I'm trying the process, but I can't quite process what Mary's reaction would have been in that moment. But even more astounding is that the angel says to Mary, the child inside of you is going to be the king, the Messiah. And you know why that's striking and shocking? Because Mary was a nobody. We never would have known her name if it wasn't for this event of the king of kings being born within her. We never would have known her. She was in the back country of an oppressed land. She was from Galilee. She was from that place that nobody wanted to be from. In Jewish society, it was the place where the nobodies were. They were kind of the backward people. They were the ones that people made jokes about because of their accent. And the angel says, the king of kings, David's son, the promised Messiah, the, the one who God has been promising all along through those prophets, all those Sunday school promises you have heard through the years, all those things that your family has reminded you of that God will one day be faithful, they're going to happen and they're going to happen now. 
God is sending in the form of a baby the Messiah. That's the amazing thing. You know, the people of Israel were looking for a king, but they were looking for grown men. They were looking for powerful, military, strong men. They were, they were looking for people of influence. They were looking in Jerusalem. If you pay attention to Matthew's gospel, even the wise men who come from another country know to go to Jerusalem first. That's where a king would be born. That's the place where a king would come from. That's, that's the type of people, the right pedigree. That's where they would come from. A king, a king would be in the center of power in the country. And the closest place to a center of power in the oppressed region of Israel was, was Jerusalem. And the amazing message is not only Mary, you're going to be pregnant, but Mary, you who live in Galilee, in this backward place that everybody else has written off, you who are but a child in this space, you're going to bear the King of Kings, God's promised Messiah, who's going to come as a baby. No pressure there. <laughs> Mary, you're going to carry the promise of God in your womb. Mary, you're going to give birth to God's promise to save all his people. Mary, you are going to hold and nurse the king of kings. Mary, you are going to hold this little one. That king of kings, the creator of the whole universe, becomes a baby. We sing about it and we make it all romantic but think about that for a moment. God, who could have chosen to be born in Jerusalem, who could have chosen to come from a powerful family with all the right religious and political and economic pedigrees so that he could have walked in and said, I'm here, bow down. Instead, bow down himself. Whereas that Philippians passage that was read during the candle lighting says he humbled himself and became obedient. Became like one of us, a baby. In the midst of this, God is saying to his people, and I don't want us to miss this, he's saying, I am going to save you and I hear you and I'm going to do so by entering into your most vulnerable place. Being a little child in an oppressed people, in a back country, born to a woman that nobody probably had ever thought about or heard about in Jerusalem. Someone who seemed completely insignificant. I'm going to that place. And I'm going to start there. And my kingship's going to be revealed not through power, but through service. And my love for you is going to be revealed not by dominating my enemies, but by loving my enemies. And you're going to see the salvation, not through the power at first, but through the humility. And in the midst of this Advent season, in the midst of our lamenting, it's not a Savior who picks us up and plunks us out, but a Savior who first steps into our mess with us. 
who steps into our vulnerability with us, who steps in and takes on all the threats and burdens that are weighing upon us, who enters into the full brokenness of the world and says, here I am with you, be not afraid, this story is not over. And what we begin here is a king who was born to reign, who was born to die. And he enters in and this story unfolds in the months and and years ahead. It's a king who would live anonymously. Have you thought about that? We know three stories after Jesus' birth story until he's 30 years old. The wise men, wise people come and show up about his second birthday. We know that at the age of 12, his parents lost him for about a week. And then we know him showing up at his baptism. We know his circumcision in there at eight days old. So there's just these few little glimpses. A king who lives anonymously. He's echoing, he's imitating, he's entering in to our suffering and our brokenness and our reality and saying, I am here with you. And because he's here with us, we have the hope that the salvation he eventually brings, the hope and the assurance that the salvation he brings is not just for the high and mighty and the powerful and the people who seem to have it all together, but it's for all of us, especially for those of us who feel like we don't have it together. Third thing from this text, Mary's response. Not her question, how will this be since I am a virgin? That seems like a normal question. But her other comment, may it be to me as the Lord has said. There's actually a bigger storyline here that we often miss over, that posture of Mary, that availability of Mary, that that humility of Mary in this moment. Because quite frankly, if anyone showed up in my house unannounced, and I happen to see them, I would either jump at them in reaction of I need to fight or I would be booking out of the house. I don't know about you, but anytime a strange person shows up in my house, I don't have this response. Any of you? I mean, it's an amazing response. She doesn't scream. She doesn't cry out, Dad, somebody's in the house who shouldn't be. She listens. She waits. She receives the word. She asks a clarifying question. And she says, okay. Let it be. Let it be to me as the Lord has said. Let it be to me as the Lord has said, even though my yes means that the ligaments of my body will get stretched in ways I'm not ready for. Even though it means my body will be reshaped over the next nine months. Even though it means I'm going to have to explain to mom and dad how come I'm pregnant. Even though it means I'm going to have to go and look at the man I'm betrothed to and try and explain to him that an angel showed up. Even though it means I'm going to be subject to ridicule. Even though it means that Joseph, good and righteous man as he is, could actually have me stoned to death. 
Even though it means, as she would hear on day eight, as Jesus is circumcised, your heart will be pierced too, Mary. You will see the suffering. You will take on the weight of a suffering king, and you will see that king as your child, even though all those things that will happen to you, even though you will carry grief, Mary says, may it be to me as the Lord has said. This is her yes to God, similar to Abraham saying, yes, Lord, I will pick up and leave my family and the country I've known and go to the place that one day you will show me and I'll be a stranger and a foreigner in a land I don't ever get to possess except for a grave. And this is like Moses standing there saying, Okay, Lord, I'm a stutterer, but I'll go back to Egypt even though there's a death warrant out there for me. This is Isaiah in the temple saying, Send me, Lord, even though I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. This is Mary giving her yes to being part of God's story. A story that will involve the king of kings being born through her. Though none of us will be asked to bear the king of kings, that's been done once, we are all invited into this story to recognize that our lives, just as much as Mary's life, is part of God's big story. That God is writing a story in this Advent season and he wants us to be part of it. Even in the midst of our brokenness, even in our laments and sorrows, even in our sense of feeling anonymous and absent and insignificant. And God's saying to us, will you say yes to me in this season? Will you submit to me being your king? Will you open up your life to me and let me live through you. The invitation in this Advent season is one of confession and examination. One to search our hearts and say, am I living as if Jesus is my king? Am I trusting God to do in me and through my life what he wants to do, not what I want to do? Am I willing to surrender the throne to my life and say, Lord, have your way in my life? Reign in me forever. Am I willing to respond simply as Mary did, even though it may have implications for my well-being? May it be to me as the Lord says. Will we be available? Each week during Advent, we've been putting a question in front of us and to chew on during the week and reflect on. And the first week was about our fears and sins and longing for Jesus to release us. And last week was about wondering if Jesus is the joy of our heart. And this week, the question for us, in what ways is it obvious that Jesus is my king? And it's not meant to be obvious to others. <laughs> It's a question for us of reflection in our own hearts, examining our own lives with the Spirit and saying, Holy Spirit, in what ways in my life is it obvious that Jesus is my King? Am I surrendering to him? Am I willing to let him have his way in me? Am I willing to let God work and live in me?
Is Jesus really my king? I can't answer it for you. But I'll engage the question with you this week to go through this story, to adopt Mary's posture, to allow God to be the king, to write his story in us and through us, no matter the cost. Because he's not only the king of the universe, he's the king of each of us. Let's pray.